So we are already coming to nearly the end of May. How many of you were able to get your spring cleaning done this year? Any of you? And I'm not just talking about clean. I'm talking about getting rid of stuff, right? Decluttering your house. How many of you would just look by a show of hands and just say, you know what, Dave, that is just way too stressful. I'm not going there. Or you can point to someone on your row who you know really well. I, I won't tell, I promise. Some of you, how many of you in the room would actually say, you know, I actually really enjoy doing that kind of thing in really sick, twisted, demented sort of way? Yeah, there are a few of you in, that, in this room. I, I don't understand you. Maybe you can explain yourselves to us at some point in another service. Um, a couple of months ago, I watched this film uh, on Netflix called Minimalism. I don't know if any of you have seen this before. It's about these two young guys who just got tired of each one of them. They got tired of all the stuff that they had been accumulating, even in their early 20s. And they just started trying to see how much stuff they could actually get rid of. And so they just started getting rid of everything that they didn't feel like they really needed. And they kept going and they kept going. And the more they started doing this, the more they started finding joy and peace in how little they actually needed to hold on to in their lives. And they just got down to a very bare minimum of stuff that they actually keep today. And then they eventually found each other. And now they've teamed up and they're going around the country doing these seminars, teaching people the freedom that they can find in living minimalistically, just with very few things in life. It's a very interesting movie. I encourage you to check it out. I actually put a link to it in your online sermon notes today at mygrace.church. But I have to say, as I was watching it, I admire these guys. I don't think I could do what they did, but I could certainly admire it. I was watching this show, and then as I'm watching it, I'm starting to feel a little bit guilty, you know, because you start looking around your house, and it's like, mm, you know. So I, I, I target all my frustrations out on this poor set of bookshelves in our living room. The, you know, all the, the bookshelves that you have that have all these books on that you intend to read one day, right? Those bookshelves. I, I just start going after this thing while I'm watching this movie, and poor shelf didn't know what hit it. By the time it was done, pretty much the whole bookshelf had gone to Goodwill. So now I have these empty bookshelves in my living room that are trying to figure out what they're going to do with what purpose they're going to have. And I thought that was good. You know, I didn't like. I don't. I can't just. I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to do this anymore because it's it's stressful. Until yesterday, where we my family realized well, we need to go after this again because. If you live in Tucson for any length of time, you've probably had some experience with pack rats, have you not? Right? They just, they come out of nowhere. And as soon as you start to get clutter, especially in your front yard or your backyard, they come to find a place to live and, and enjoy themselves. So a few days ago, we started noticing that our pool filter had these extra holes in it that it wasn't supposed to have. Right? And then they graduated to the seat cushions on the back patio and they're like, okay, we're done. And so Teresa and I just went after our back patio yesterday and just got rid of everything we didn't absolutely need to have to just see if we could get rid of these things. But you know, for, all, for many of us at times, this, this clutter that we slowly keep accumulating in our lives, we don't realize how much we're getting until something happens and we're like, you know what? I just can't deal with all this stuff anymore. I need to get rid of it. I need to declutter and what we've been finding through this series over the last few weeks called Decluttering Christianity is that we can do something very similar to that with faith, right? It, without realizing it, we can just kind of start getting to this place where you know, we get more focused on a growing list of rules that we think what be, is, it's what being a Christian is all about. And we focus more on the rules and getting everyone else to follow those rules than the relationship that we can have with Christ. You know, rules like, Go to church and read your Bible, right? And 
don't smoke, don't chew, and don't hang out with those who do. Well, you may, I don't know what your list is, but you've probably got your list. And we're starting to figure out what our lists are that, we're, that clutter up our faith at times. And it becomes clutter. It goes from being useful to being clutter when we start to realize these things aren't helping us grow closer to Christ, but are actually just a set of rules to keep us in legalism. So today as we look at the book of Galatians once again, we're going to see Paul explaining something that might actually surprise you. And that is this, that we don't please God by being rule breakers or by being rule keepers. Trying to follow anyone's rules never draws you any closer to the rule maker, does it? Whether it's your parents or the IRS, right, or any other government agency or even God. So when it comes to the law, what we're going to see is that Paul's approach to all this is very simple. Out with the old and in with the new. Out with the old and in with the new. Paul told the Galatians that God's law was temporary. It was just supposed to be in force until Christ came. And Paul wasn't speaking out of turn when he said that. Jesus himself told people when he was here that he didn't come to abolish the law but to fulfill the law, right? But what does that mean? What, what's the difference between abolishing it and fulfilling it? What's the point that Jesus is trying to make by making a distinction between those two words? Now, the Bible says that God's law in the Old Testament is now over. It's obsolete. So, what does that mean? Some people say, well, that just means that we can disregard all this stuff that's in the Old Testament. If it's a law, if it's anything that God told us we were supposed to do, that's in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. We can just ignore that. Um, It's not authoritative anymore. But is that really true? You know, in the years shortly after Paul died, there was a guy in the early church called Marcion. And he started going around teaching this in churches, and the church as a whole came out and called him a heretic for teaching this. Now, you may feel, and if you've, been a, if you've been around Christians for any amount of time, whether you are one or not, you may feel, if you've learned a little bit about your Bible, especially in the Old Testament, that there are these laws that certain Christians, or many Christians, don't even follow anymore. And you might have been in a place where, at times, you thought, you know what, what's this deal with Christians where they cherry-pick what laws they decide to follow and which ones they don't, right? It's like, well, and, and maybe you've heard this phrase, it's like, well, that, that law doesn't apply to us anymore, But that can be even more confusing and unsettling, right? I mean, it's like, have you ever felt this way? It's like, who who lets you decide which laws God wrote that you can fulfill and which ones you can just ignore, right? I understand that there are some Old Testament laws that are a bit unsettling. Some of them are actually downright illegal today, like killing our kids for being a little rebellious, right? I mean, we've all thought about it at times, right? If you're looking at me like, how could you think that? You haven't had a teenager yet. Trust me. But none of us think seriously about it, right? Right? Please tell me. Okay. Yet one of the 613 laws that we find in the Old Testament is in the Jewish scriptures says that you should stone such kids to death for being rebellious toward their mother and their father. Other laws in the Old Testament teach us that we're supposed to circumcise every guy and that we're never supposed to touch dead bodies and we're supposed to put to death anyone found guilty of rape or incest or adultery or homosexual acts or sex before marriage even. 
There are over two dozen offenses in the Old Testament that all call for the death penalty. So who gets to decide which of these laws are out and which ones get to stay in? People like atheist Richard Dawkins point to these laws and he says that this is why Christianity is either barbaric or inconsistent. So are people like Richard Dawkins right? Well, let's jump into the book of Galatians today and let's find out. Galatians chapter 3. Now today I'm actually going to read for, to you from a version of the, of the English, English version of the Bible that I'm not used to reading from. I'm usually used to a New Living Translation, but today I want to kind of get us down to real basics. And there's a version that you can find online, you can actually buy, called the Easy to Read Version. So we're going to go right to the Easy to Read Version today. And it's actually in your online sermon notes today at mygrace.church. You can click on the Messages tab there to follow along. Now, if you were here last week, what you know is that we kind of skipped over a section of Galatians last week for Mother's Day at the end of, we did this section at the end of chapter 3. So we're going to go right back to the beginning of chapter 3 today in verse 1. So let's look at Galatians 3, verses 1 and 2. It says, this is Paul writing to the churches in Galatia. You people in Galatia are so foolish. Why do I say this? Because I told you very clearly about the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. But now it seems as though you have let someone use their magical powers on you to make you forget that. And then Paul says, tell me this one thing. How did you receive the Spirit of God? Did did you receive the Spirit by following the law? No, he says, you received the Spirit because you heard the message about Jesus and you believed it. Now, here, Paul's talking about letting go of the old, the the law, and embracing the new, the the good news. And he says, you do, he he talks about doing this by pointing to their very own lives, right? He's bringing up the Holy Spirit because he knows the experiences that they've had in Galatia. When he came there and he shared Christ with them, they had these powerful experiences with God's Spirit that they couldn't deny. And he says, remember those times? He's like, do you think somehow you were just making that up? If, if God was truly pleased with you because of what Christ did on the cross, if that's really enough, then you, know, you can understand why God gave you His Spirit. But if that wasn't enough, then why would have God, God have given you the Holy Spirit in the first place? Right? And then if you kind of scroll down to verse 5, he starts talking to them about the miracles that they've seen. And they continue to see in Galatia uh, at that time. And he says, is God, would God still be doing all these miracles if he was somehow thinking that you weren't good enough? If he wasn't seeing you through Christ, if he was still thinking you need to obey all those 613 laws to the letter, because if you did, if, he, God, if God thinks that, then God wouldn't be doing these miracles in your midst. But then Paul doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just point to their experiences to say this is wrong, uh, to, to, to somehow hold on to this Jewish law. But he says the Jewish scriptures say what I'm said this very thing that I'm talking about. Centuries ago. Look at verses 8 and 9. Do you have verses 8 and 9 there? There we go. The scriptures told what would happen in the future. These writings said that God would make the non-Jewish people right through their faith. Not through the law. God told this good news to Abraham before it even happened. In other words, before the law was even in existence, God told Abraham this was going to happen. God said to Abraham, I will use you to bless all the people on earth. Abraham believed this, and because he believed, he was blessed. 
All people who believe are blessed the same as Abraham was. So God's, he's saying here, God's ultimate plan was for us to live by faith, not by the law. God accepted Abraham by faith even before the law that God gave on Mount Sinai even existed. And when Abraham was walking the earth, God told him that this time was going to come when the law wouldn't even be needed because people would live by faith. So hearing this, now let me just pause for a moment. You might say, well, David, then what was the whole point of the law in the first place? Why did God even give these 613 laws? Well, that's a really good point. Look at, verses, look at verse 19. Let me read that to you. So what was the law for, Paul says? The law was given to show the wrong things people do. The law would continue until the special descendant of Abraham came, Jesus. This is the descendant mentioned in the promise which came directly from God. So he's saying here, Paul's saying, it's not that the law was bad. It just wasn't enough because we can't keep it. So he points to this descendant of promise who was Jesus, who would come and then there would be no need for the law anymore. The law pointed out people's sins. And the law helped preserve order. It's just like the laws today in our city or our country. We need laws because we need to preserve order and we need to kind of point out when people are doing wrong, right? But my guess is you don't feel any more fondness to, the law, to Oral Valley because of the laws they write. You don't, feel, you don't feel closer to Congress because of the laws they create for you each year, right? Now, the law that God gave the Israelite people, it was kind of like their constitution back then. It was their governing document because there's a million plus slaves coming out of slavery in Egypt and they're going to be this new nation and they have no laws to live by. And so God's giving them these laws on Mount Sinai, the beginning of the law, to help create a civil government for them on top of other things. And this law was meant to curb people's desire to do whatever they wanted But it was never meant, listen, it was never meant to make them good. And it was never meant to somehow draw them close into a relationship with God. Think about it this way. Let me me put it to you this way. There's a reason why you don't speed badly in Oral Valley. Now, notice I didn't say there's, no, there's a reason why you don't speed, because I've, I've seen some of you on the streets of Oral Valley. I, I know you speed. Some of you may be really good at following the law of the letter. Praise God for you. God bless you. But there's a reason why you don't break those laws badly. And it's not because you're righteous. It's not because you love the law. It's because you don't want to tick it, right? Let's just fess up. Is that right? Speed limit laws are not meant to make you a better person, believe it or not. And they're not meant to change your heart. They're not meant to draw you closer to the government. If anything, about our hearts, it just shows us how callous we can be sometimes. And that, that is what the law does. It points out to you where the boundaries are. It points out to you what is more or less okay. It points out, it keeps you more or less in check out of fear of repercussions. God saw the Jewish people needed something until Christ came to keep them in check. They needed some sort of a stopgap solution, including some kind of government laws for them as a new nation. 
that would be formed. Rules aren't bad. It's just they're not meant to transform people from the inside out. I mean, you know that, right? If, if you work in law enforcement, you know this. If you've been a parent for any length of time, you know this. Paul says when we accept Christ, we're actually released from the law. It's out with the old. The law is now obsolete. God does the heavy lifting by putting his spirit in us to soften and to change our hearts. Look at what Hebrews says here. Hebrews 8 verse 7. It says, if the, old covenant, if the first covenant, the old covenant, the law, had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second covenant to replace it. But when God found fault with the people, he said, the day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This, now this is actually, this quote, this quote here that you see at the bottom, this is actually from Jeremiah chapter 31. This was written centuries before Jesus even came. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. They did not remain faithful to my covenant, so I turned my back on them, says the Lord. But notice verse 10. This is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day. That day when the, when the fulfillment, when Jesus comes. I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them in their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Listen to the heart of God here. And I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. And then in verse 13, the author writes, When God speaks of the new covenant, it means he has made the first one obsolete. It is now out of date and will soon disappear, it says. So again, this is a quote from Jeremiah 31, centuries before Christ came. The Old Test- it says here that the Old Testament would be obsolete. But what does that mean? Well, let me kind of give you four things real quickly to explain to you what this idea of the Old Testament being obsolete means. It means, number one, God isn't using it anymore to judge us. Thank God for that. Number two, that there's no longer any list of do's and don'ts that we have to follow in order to be accepted by God. It doesn't mean that we can live however we want. It's the part of the process of growing closer to Christ is learning to have a heart like he does. And as we saw just now, Jesus, the writing in Hebrews was saying God was going to put his law in our hearts to be a connection between him and us. Third thing that makes the law obsolete is there's no fear of judgment anymore when we fail the law because there's no fear in love. And number four, we don't need to offer sacrifices to, to God. We don't need to do anything to make ourselves right before God because of the sins we commit. Because Christ has already paid for all of that on the cross for us. So, thank God, the law is obsolete. But notice, I don't know if you noticed in verse 13 when I read it to you, it said, it's obsolete, but it's not going to disappear. Did you notice that? What does that mean? Well, as we read, it says, God saying, I'm going to put my law on your heart. It's not going to be in print anymore. It's not going to be a set of things you have to follow because someone told you you did. I'm going to imprint myself, my law, in your heart. In other words, you won't have to be doing these things to avoid judgment. You'll be following them out of a heart for God. To live in a way that draws your heart closer to his. That's something that the IRS code will never do for us, right? 
Because it's, thank God it will never be imprinted upon our hearts. But God's law has been imprinted on our hearts, God says, when the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us. It means you'll follow the law to not, be, not to be accepted by God, but because you're accepted by God and you want to become more like him. Big difference. So to finish our big idea for today, let me put it to you this way. We don't please God by being rule breakers or rule keepers, but by inviting Christ to rule in our hearts. You see the difference? The law didn't disappear. We, we didn't throw it out because it's still a useful reference. From it, we can come to know God's character. We can understand the difference between right and wrong, the difference between good and evil. So back to our question then that we talked about earlier this morning. What's this whole thing about cherry picking from Scripture? How do we know which things in the Old Testament law we are supposed to follow anymore and which ones we're not? Which ones apply, which ones don't? Because the world looks at the Bible and says, you Christians don't even follow your own book sometimes. So, so what do we do with that? Do we, do we just cherry pick which things we follow and which ones we don't? Yes, actually, we do. And let me explain to you. When I say that, I'm not saying that we're to be subjective and or that we're, to be, we're just supposed to decide for ourselves which ones we like or we don't anymore. I'm certainly not saying that. But there are three kinds of laws in the Old Testament. Now, you didn't realize I was going to give you so much to, to think about this morning, did you? There are three types of laws in the Old Testament. And if you understand what those three types of laws are, then you can understand how you're supposed to decide if they are applicable to you today or not. Here's those three kinds of laws. Moral law. Civil law or judicial law and ceremonial law. Now, there's a, help, there's a few helpful articles in your online sermon notes today at mygrace.church. If you want to dig into these a little bit deeper than what I'm going to share with you this morning, you can feel free to do that. There's some really good stuff there. What you're going to see is that these aren't my definitions. I didn't just come up with these last week on a whim. They've been around as long as Christianity itself. So I'm just kind of pointing back to the writings of the earliest church and how it's been played out for the last 2,000 years in the life of the church as the as in Scripture has been interpreted. So let me kind of walk through what these three things are. The moral law is the heart of the law. The moral law is, the, this is what God, how God has always wanted us to live. And the moral law is based on, it's wrapped around two key laws. Some of you already know which I'm gonna, what I'm going to say, right? Number one, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And the second, I mean, Jesus pointed this over and over again. Love your neighbors yourself. We talk about these here at Grace all the time. That is the heart of the moral law. That's our guide to knowing what, our compass in life, to, so to speak. Now, the civil law was actually their governing laws. As they became a new nation in Israel and they needed some kind of laws to keep them in check... You know, they needed speed limits for, like, for their horses or buggies or whatever. I don't know, whatever, they had all these laws, right? 613 of them. Many of them were civil laws, and they were meant for a couple purposes. One was for public health. They kind of governed everything for them as a new nation, from diet to disease outbreaks, and how to handle those things in a primitive culture, an ancient culture. Now, um, the, the, these civil laws were also there to help prosecute crimes as well. So to give you an example, honor your father and your mother, that's a moral law, right? But if your kids are rebellious and don't listen to you, 
go take them out and stone them? That's a civil or judicial law. That's not a moral law. Don't apply that one today, no matter how much you want to, right? That, that law was created by, as a way for the government, not for mom and dad, to take care of problems in their culture as they saw them at that time. So you see the difference? Now, the third kind of a law that I'll share with you that's up here is ceremonial laws. And I'll just say this. These laws had to do with how people uh, tried to deal with the, with the consequences of their sins, how to ask for forgiveness from God when Christ hadn't come. That's the, all these laws had to do with priests and sacrifices and how to make themselves clean before God. Now, I'm going to go backwards to the beginning. Jesus said what? I didn't come to abolish the law but to fulfill the law. Let me explain. He fulfilled, Jesus fulfilled the civil law and the ceremonial law by paying the full penalty and being the ultimate sacrifice for all of our sins. And when Christ died on the cross and was resurrected, those two sections of law were taken care of at that moment. So we don't have to follow the civil and the ceremonial laws anymore because number one, we don't live under the laws of ancient Israel. We, none of us happen to be living in ancient Israel right now, right? And number two, because the consequences of the new covenant are found for our sins are found in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, what? God is faithful and just and will forgive them. In other words, you, you, you do what's wrong, you ask, you repent, you turn from those things, you ask Christ to forgive you, and they're gone. There's no... Clean up later. There's no sacrifices that have to be done. There's no things you have to do to be pleasing to God because of what you did. God's already forgotten them. He says he chooses to forget them when you repent and you turn from them. Jesus fulfilled the moral law as well by keeping it perfectly every day for all his entire life. But Jesus didn't abolish the moral law that reminds us of God's character, that reminds us of right from wrong. And that's why Hebrews said, the law is obsolete, but it hasn't disappeared. All right? So, to, to wrap up this morning. Out with the old, in with the new. What's out? Well, number one, our need to be perfect. Or even the pressure to feel like we need to be perfect in our lives. Christ took that pressure off of us on the cross. What else is out? The judgment that we deserve for our sins. And our need to try to atone for them outside of just asking God for forgiveness. And here's the thing. Here's what's in. A personal relationship with God. Based on a never-ending supply of his grace to you. That comes by inviting Christ to rule in your heart. Paul was very adamant about this idea of letting go of the old. Letting go of the law. And now, maybe, hopefully, with all that I've explained to you this morning, you can see why. Because that law is obsolete. Although it hasn't fully disappeared. God has imprinted his law on our hearts. So that we can come to know him. Not so that we can just obey a bunch of rules. But so that we can come to know him personally. And Christ calls out to you today from wherever you are, whatever situation you're in, whatever your relationship with God has looked like in the recent past, God comes to you today and he says, I want a closer relationship with you. 
Yes, I want you to follow these moral laws I've given you because I want you to come to know me for who I am. I want you to know my character, but ultimately I want a relationship with you. I don't want you to just know about me. I want you to know me. Would you pray with me? Lord, I just feel your heart calling out to us this morning through something as stale to many of us as the Old Testament law. Lord, I feel like your heart is speaking out loudly to us this morning about what it means to trust you and to have this law imprinted on our hearts. God, I pray for each person in this room and each person listening online who has struggled with all the rules that come with Christianity. All those things that sometimes causes us to create an emotional distance even from being a fully devoted follower of Christ because we're concerned of all the the rules we'll have to follow, the things we'll have to give up. And Lord, you don't say that we can ignore the rules, but you say, let me come to dwell inside of you where they don't feel like rules anymore. They don't feel like obligations, but they feel like me. God, I pray for each person in this room today and each person listening online who have struggled with that the struggle with coming to know you for who you truly are and the deep profound love that you have for each one of us god i ask that you would continue to stir in our hearts and our lives and help us to come to know you more as we lean on you as we trust you more and as we follow the law as you intended us to follow it in coming to know you more if you're here today and you've never said yes to christ if you've never opened up your heart to him, if faith has just seemed like a bunch of rules to you, hopefully you've seen that that's not really the case. I encourage you to just say yes to God today by praying this prayer in the silence of your heart. Heavenly Father, I, just, I, I come to you today and I confess that I need you and I want you in my life. Thank you, Lord, for doing so much for me to pave the way to have a relationship with you that I don't have to be perfect. God, I ask that you would come into my heart even now, that you would fill me with your spirit, as Pastor Dave talked about, as you promised that you would do, as I confess that you are my Savior, my God, my Creator, my Lord, who gave everything on a cross so that I could truly live and experience life abundantly. God, I ask that you would forgive me of each and every one of my sins, even now, and that you would begin to change me from the inside out and make me into the person you've always wanted me to be all these years. In Jesus' name.